As much as I trash, nitpick, and criticize the music business, I still hold on very dearly to the reasons that attracted me to this seedy line of work in the first place. The music, the chance to perform the music, the applause, and every now and then the interesting people you are lucky enough to meet in this nomadic, blood-sucking, rigged game called rock and roll. When you think about it, the time you are given to actually bask in the glory and revel in the tradition of rock and roll and feel the volume and vibration of the loud music that brought us all together in the first place is usually as fleeting as 80 minutes, 60 minutes, half an hour, sometimes as short as 15 to 20 minutes depending on how long your set is. And you quickly realize that the business of rock and roll is largely spent killing downtime, thus the lopsided drug and alcohol casualties that have played a large part in both defacing and mythologizing its image. These days, with laptops and iPads, it's easy for a band to pass the time and avoid fatal temptations, but no matter how much streaming you do or trolling you embark on, nothing comes close to meeting a kindred spirit out on the road and hearing the stories that only a precious few can tell. Despite the rock and roll game being overrun by bloated egos, weak posturing, and inflated machismo, it only takes a few minutes to spot these gracious individuals too. They're humble but confident, energetic but exude calmness, and their stories... Man, they got a ton, and you want to hear all of them. This summer, while we were out on the road on the Uproar Festival, we got to play with a lot of bands, one of them being The Walking Papers. The Walking Papers are a band from Seattle, Washington, featuring none other than Duff McKagan, bassist for Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver, and Loaded, who we toured with earlier this year, but more importantly, a past guest on this podcast. In fact, knowing Duff was going to be on the tour put us all at ease. At least we'd know one cool person there. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you might be getting an inkling that I'm somewhat of a shut-in or a near-mute, if you will. Not too social outside of our band and crew. I like to keep to myself. It takes a while to get me to come out of my shell and partly why I do this podcast in the first place. It's, it's to stem all that. Very rarely do I meet someone where I immediately hit it off, but Barrett Martin, drummer of the Walking Papers, is such a person. Just about every time we'd see each other on the tour, our discussions lasted hours, and after a few of them, I realized that our talks were being lost into the ether, so it was only natural that I ask him to be on the podcast, to which he kindly agreed. Aside from drumming for the Rocking Papers, Barrett's CV reads like a wish list of bands from Skinyard, Screaming Trees, and Mad Season to collaborations with Peter Buck in Tuatara, Seadell uh, Davis, Queens of the Stone Age, Twilight Singers, Stone Temple Pilots, and Tad, to name a few. As you will hear on this episode, talk with Barrett can go from one extreme to the next without so much as batting an eye. In fact, there's one story at the end where he pretty much blew my mind and was quite um, I was quite unprepared uh, for, 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 for his story. So talk continued longer than planned and, and I had to cut it down with a promise of part two. So part two with Barrett Martin will be coming up in the next few weeks. There's a point in this podcast where talk turns to Steve Martin, and although it might sound odd to mention it here now, I just wanted to make it clear that Steve Martin wrote his autobiography, Born Standing Up, in 2007, and the other Steve Martin book I refer to in this episode is called P. 
pure drivel from 1998. Doesn't make sense now, but it will once you hear it. I just wasn't able to remember the names of the books while we were taping. Like every episode, this podcast is most thankful to Blue Mic Microphones for their Yeti mics and to Skullcandy Headphones. Both support the podcast, and I'm very, very thankful for that. Okay, here we go. Here's Barrett Martin, and he is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. Should we start our conversation by saying that we have these great conversations in catering, wishing that we had the microphones turned on? I'm very nervous about this because uh, I, we joked about it yesterday, but we might freeze recording this conversation just because it's we got we're supposed to be on. Right, and there's something to be said about the the cacophony of a catering area, and there's people around, and you just free form conversation and. But I've I've gone after our discussions. I've come back on the bus and just said, "I just spent three hours with Barrett talking yeah. to. We were what were you guys talking about for like two and a half hours? Yeah, you know everything, and I can't remember anything. But yeah, there's just been some great stories lobbed over during our talks what that I had to, to get you on the podcast. Oh, I'm honored to be here. And what you need to do is go to one of those spy shops. And buy one of those little like yeah. hidden remote recording devices, and then you'll you'll get some great stuff. We had like a what a, a ninety minute talk about art. Yeah, and yeah. for you to to procure a discussion about art from me, yeah. now that takes some doing, and you did it. We talked about it for ninety minutes. Yeah, almost. Yeah. And uh, it was the length of a standard college lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and when it was done, I was just like, well. There's a podcast down the tubes that we'll never hear an episode. So, um, but these are not that we have to have another discussion about art history, but I mean, I've always felt that art, music, literature, film, these are the most important things that humanity can offer because so much information and uh, social messages and you know, deep commentary is contained in those mediums. And I, I've just always loved that stuff. Now, I guess it'll be said in the intro and everything, but you are playing drums with your band, The Walking Papers. We're on tour together here for the Uproar Festival. Yep. But over and above that, I didn't know until yesterday, you told me that you you do art as well. Yeah. And the way you do it was more interesting than most. How, like, There's a process or, 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 or a way, a certain way that you do your pieces well what happened i you know i'd always as i said you know i'd 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 always loved art and you know studied it in college and when i have days off if i'm anywhere near a a museum or particularly a modern art museum i'll go because i want to see what people are doing and but for me getting into doing art i had been studying zen uh meditation and zen philosophy and uh, after a few years of doing that, I took a class in Zen painting. And you've probably seen examples of it in books or where they use the charcoal ink and it's black and gray. Oh, and, yes. And, you know, yeah. it actually started as an ancient uh, Taoist tradition in China. And then the Zenists in Japan adopted it. 
and it became uh, a very stylized form. Um, in particular, the painting of circles, the Enzo, is a meditation in itself. <coughs> and uh, so I, I took some classes in that and how to make the ink and how to, you know, brush stroke techniques and things like that. And then at a certain point, I just started using acrylics and, you know, multicolored acrylics and kind of developed my own style, which is kind of influenced by people like Jackson Pollock and, and uh, Claude Monet um, of the, you know, kind of abstract impressionists. Um, but then also uh, with this, this concept of meditating and then doing the painting quickly. Right. That's, yeah, yeah you were yeah. saying that. Which that's the process. You meditate for half an hour to 45 minutes, sometimes upwards of an hour, and then you do the painting very quickly. Five minutes? It. Sometimes, well, if you're just doing circle painting, you might do that in a, in a few seconds. Right. And the idea of the painting wow. is that if you do an Enzo, a circle painting, you're showing movement of the spirit within the brush. And there, there's a lot of uh, symbolic meaning in the circle itself. Um, it represents life, the circle of life. Uh, the void in the, in the center um, is the emptiness from which the universe comes from. Uh, this is, you know, Buddhist philosophy as well. So that would be a whole other conversation <laughs> there. But, but, but if you understand the symbolism of it, then mm -hmm. the painting makes sense. It's, right. it's kind of like you, you need to kind of understand the, the, the theory that, of where it's coming from. And then, but at the same time, it's kind of like what we were talking about yesterday. You can see a piece of art and not necessarily know the history behind it, but it can move you. You can feel affected by it. And I was saying that very rarely, if ever, has that ever happened to me, unlike music, where you can just be dropped in on any era, any time, and you can connect with it on, on a spiritual, on a gut level. And I just, I've never felt that kind of visual connection in art the way I have with music. Well, I think I feel it in music as much, if not more so, than in art, being primarily a musician. Yeah. And um, I, I also, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, I, I think of music as a mystical and spiritual process. Of course, you know, there's socio-political commentary to be made, but at its core foundation, um, music is a, is a rhythmic, melodic, vibrational art form. It's, it's abstract because we can't see it. Yes. Unless it's written out or, yeah. you know, the, the medium of a CD or a, or a piece of vinyl. But, but the universe is a vibrational place. It's constantly vibrating. And, and modern physics is, is proving this, but I think we as musicians kind of feel that automatically. You told me as well yesterday that um, I brought up Ravi Shankar, and then yeah. you brought up the fact that you opened for him with another band. Yeah, I, uh, this was about 15 years ago, 96, 97, I think. I have this instrumental band called Tuatara, um, which I started with Peter Buck from R.E.M. And uh, we started doing it to do film soundtrack work because we wanted to do instrumental kind of soundscape stuff without having to think of pop songs. And right. so we made a, a couple albums for uh, for Sony, and uh, they did oh. they did fairly well. You know, we toured, and and uh, um, we actually did do some film soundtrack work. And which, which films? Uh, I did a, a 
a film called Lush, which uh, starred uh, Laura Linney and Campbell Scott. It's basically about a couple alcoholics in New Orleans, <laughs> but you know, it's an art house film. You know, right, these are yeah. not these are not like major motion. Pictures, I've seen the but. video box in the video store. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's kind of a, a, a jazz soundtrack for that particular one. Um, and then we we've had songs in TV shows. We had a song in Sex in the City, and you know, just like you know, cues basically. But it got us into making albums, and we're working on a new album right now. Uh, but back in 97, uh, Peter Gabriel asked us to play this uh, WOMAD festival. Right. And we were on the main stage and got That's to open awesome. for Ravi Shankar. That's and amazing. so I watched The Master from the side of the stage. And how was he when you met him? Uh, it was just a formal, you know, shake hands yeah, and, right. you know, kind of a meet and greet kind of thing. But yeah. he was very gracious. He, he did radiate an energy of of calmness and and serenity and very very dignified elegant man and it was right around that time his daughter Anushka was playing with him and she's kind of the heir apparent of that legacy yeah. so yeah so they played as a duo and they had uh they had a tabla player and i think one other music and a harmonium player i think hmm. but yeah but when you watch a great master like that play and 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 in your in their physical presence it changes how you think about music um and i i, I think in that same conversation i brought that yeah, yeah yeah the fact that you are loaded with all this pre-information about this person but and yeah. that plays a part in how you view them and how you're affected by them right you know when you're in their presence right. i mean i've been in the presence of people that were very famous and you walk away going man I could feel his energy it was right there but maybe it's right. because I've been seeing two dimensional pictures of him for right. like my whole life or something right yeah your mind is loaded up with all these photographs and these internal stories that your mind has created which you know as we know being in rock and roll all that stuff gets bl overblown and mythologized <laughs> yeah. and like yeah I was there when that happened and that's not what happened you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure um, uh, but I would think you know, someone like Ravi Shankar, and you can argue that, you know, classical East Indian music is a little more spiritual than, you know, yeah. the the average 4-4 rock song that we, we well, all engage in. I think maybe that lends itself to some sort of extra layer of aura. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, you, you know the, you have to even take into account the fact that, you know, something like... Uh, classic um uh you know hindustani in indian music um is built to, you know where the where the the ragas come from the um, times of the, the times the times of the day that they should be played yeah. um the scales are different going up than they are coming down and they sometimes correspond with uh spiritual or emotional parts of the body mm -hmm. Um, same thing with the towels, the rhythms, mm -hmm. uh, the way that they, um, the way that they affect consciousness, the speed and the tempo of the towels. Uh, I mean, the, the, these are deep spiritual, classical forms of music that go back, um, in some cases, thousands of years. Well, from classical East Indian music, I take with the the contemporary music I listen to. When it comes to the times of the day that you listen to certain ragas, I apply that to my music listening with my bands that I listen to and I like you know I yeah. like the only time I can listen to reggae music is in the morning yeah you know yeah. The, the only time I can listen to like dark hard eerie almost ambient music is at night yeah you know that and that, apl that applies as well 
Uh, you know, speaking of reggae, um, I, I'm not real knowledgeable about it, but I'm one of those people that absolutely loves Bob Marley. And the reason why I do is because he was a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. I love his songs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I understand a little bit about how, you know, where the reggae... This is an interesting thing. Did you know that um, back uh, when um, reggae was first emerging... Um, there was a uh, uh, a radio station that was broadcast. I think it was I think it was uh, uh, Radio America was was broadcasting, and they had to triangulate and bounce off the atmosphere, so that when it would hit the radio stations in Jamaica, it had a pulse to it, like the way they would receive it had this pulse to it. And at the time, the music that was being played was was jazz, you know, bebop jazz and you know, music uh, that was popular in the 50s and 60s. So when you heard that music over the radio in Jamaica, it had a pulse to it. And that's, the ethnomusicologists say that that's how the feel of reggae began to develop. Oh, wow. Is that pulse, they're listening to American jazz, but with this backbeat pulse to it. Oh, wow, I didn't know. No, I did not know that. It's, I, 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 and when I was when I was taught this in school, I was just like, "Wow, that's amazing! How technology and the atmosphere affects how we perceive of music." Um, did you take a course on world music? Uh, I have a master's degree in ethnomusicology. Oh, so you so took a variety, a of variety of courses, courses over a period <laughs> <Yeah>. of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Over and and I actually taught. I, I taught ethnomusicology and, you know, cultural anthropology in college. I was an adjunct professor for about three years. Oh, so. I just took a, took a world music course. But even one course, it's amazing what you can learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, or that the steel drum in Trinidad was a direct result of 50-gallon oil drums that had been, they used Trinidad as a garbage dump to dispose of uh, oil drums during World War II. That's wow. where they would leave the empty drums. It was the oil depot as well. And the locals figured out how to make it into an instrument. And now we have soca. That's right. Or great. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, a, that's an amazing story. I didn't, I didn't know that either. And we're on tour with Jane's Addiction, and when they play their finale, Jane says, Stephen Perkins comes out and plays a steel drum, mm-hmm. which is a huge part of that. So Pop the, song. the big circle. The circle is completed. Right. <laughs> so I guess uh, bringing it back to more uh, of a rock and roll thing, you're on yeah. tour with Walking Papers, and I was, I was, we were on tour with Loaded earlier this year. That's with right. Duff. Yeah. And. Um, and then once again, we're Duff is out with us, and and we're on tour together, but it's with another band. So, how did you guys form and meet up? I mean, I I have an inkling as to how, but what's the Walking official story? Papers. Walking Papers. Um, I actually I uh, I've known Duff for many years, almost twenty years, and we we actually had uh, a series of jam sessions in Los Angeles in the mid nineteen nineties before he formed. Uh, was after he left Guns N' Roses, but before he formed Velvet Revolver. Mm-hmm. And we had a great chemistry as a rhythm section, but we were not able to find a guitar player or a singer to, to do a band. So we just kind of, you know, remained friends, but sort of went, we both went back to school, actually. Duff went back to college, and so did I. And then he formed Velvet Revolver. Um, fa- you know, sort of flash forward, um, 
15 years and uh and i um i met ben and and uh jeff from the missionary position which is a kind of a beloved seattle they're, they're like the heaviest lounge band in seattle basically um and i i played a couple shows with them and really really liked the way that they played music and the way jeff wrote lyrics and he's a great singer uh, yeah they're both great singers yeah yeah and they'd done a lot of backup you know ben had been a backup vocalist for jeff so i called jeff and i said hey do you want to do a a project but i wasn't thinking it was really going to be a rock band i kind of thought it would be more like let's write some songs and i'll play vibraphone or something you know Mm -hmm. uh so jeff and i got together and wrote the first clump of songs and i had some studio time booked and we went in and laid down basic tracks but we realized you know we kind of need a bass player and we need some additional you know players on this so the first person we thought of was duff and uh duff was very happy to come down and and play with me again and and he already knew jeff so that kind of made it a trio and then we brought ben in to do keyboards and additional backup vocals and so the band came together making the album now what year is this this is two thousand winter of uh 2011 oh uh, yeah. okay it, going into 2012 so it was about you know a year and a half ago that we made the okay, album so this is post loaded for duff yeah so he's got velvet revolver he's got yeah loaded on his yeah. plate yeah wow, okay yeah it's after i mean he still does loaded as mm-hmm. you know that's his solo thing yeah but uh they're kind of on hiatus right now and and we all really as i said i didn't know that it was going to become a rock band but it has yeah. and and a good one and and yeah. i'm i'm really having a good time with it I, I love being able to play uh you know great rock and roll that has a good story you know good you know good narrative to the whole thing and and just being able to play with you know friends of mine is this you know? your first real tour of america have you guys done yeah this is this is our first north american tour we did a brief west coast tour last november which went very well but it was just a little club tour that we were doing so this is our first north american tour and we've been to europe three times now we We, were we played a show together but i didn't meet you that day i met uh jc yeah Yeah. that was in um that was in sweden bravo love festival that's right Yeah, yeah yeah um and then i i told you i heard the walking papers on the radio in finland when I we know. played and a few weeks later, yeah, in Finland. And I saw, uh, which, which that was actually, uh, I think literally, um, when when we played in Finland, I saw two Danko Jones videos at a club. Oh. Uh, and uh, and they were great. I actually oh, don't know the names of the songs, mm-hmm. but they were really cool videos back oh. to back. And then we saw you play the next day. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, there's, you know people are going to want to hear about it and you told me one of the best stories in a long time um but <coughs> you got to tell me the story sure that you told me um about you hanging out with kurt cobain and oh yeah chris novoselic okay so <coughs> in in san francisco yeah we i was i was in really my first real rock band that made records and toured it was a band called skin yard mm-hmm. one of the proto grunge bands and the guitar player was jack and dino and a who, fan and, and I'm a fan yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's a he's an, a righteous dude jack is and he's produced some amazing records including nirvana's bleach for Soundgarden records he's coming on this tour for for a date that's right yeah. uh when we play in washington state he's on that with his solo band 
So we were in San Francisco. This is about 19. I'm trying to remember if it was late 90 or maybe early 91. But uh, we were in San Francisco a day early, and, and somehow Jack got a call from, it was either Kurt or Chris Novoselic, and they said, well, we're in San Francisco too. Let's get together. We're going to go to this club called the I-Beam. It's right on Haight-Ashbury. It's not there anymore, but it was a pretty famous club at the time. And we're going to go see this band called Scream, and their drummer is this guy Dave Grohl, and we're checking him out to see if we might want to have him in Nirvana. So we're just thinking, okay, let's let's go hang out with our friends and go to the club, and and uh, and there weren't a lot of people in there. I I remember the scene well. I don't think there's more than fifty people, and it's a big club. It's actually probably holds you know close to a thousand people. Um, and uh, there's Dave Grohl playing the drums, and he's just destroying the drums. I mean, really playing at a very high level of the game. And uh, and I leaned over to Chris, the bass player, and I said, "You better get that guy in your band before somebody else does." And and everybody kind of nodded, like, "Yep, that's the guy." So I I think shortly after that he was offered the gig, and they went to make the Nevermind record. So and everyone knows what happened after that yeah. that's a great story but what comes full circle about that was <laughs> i think you told that to me <laughs> right after the guy who oh, was yeah. also on that yeah. stage that day was sitting right beside that's us that's right the the singer for scream was pete stall he's on this tour with us yeah and i'm gonna get him on um one of the podcast episodes because pete sang on our album one yeah. of our records a yeah. couple of couple of records back and I, over the years, uh, had done some recording sessions with Pete with his band, The Earthlings. Yes. Which was based in Joshua Tree at the Rancho de la Luna studio, which right. is where Josh from Queens of the Stone Age does the desert sessions. Dave Ketching. And Dave Ketching is the is the owner proprietor. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I've I played on two or three Earthling songs, and I, I believe a couple of them made their actual album, which but I don't have a copy of it. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Uh, I only I realized I think after I met Pete for the first time on this tour that I have a G, I'm wearing a jean jacket with his band band's patch sewed yeah. onto it. I, he hasn't seen that yet, but uh, hey, well, I mean, he had a band after Scream called Wool. Yes, my old band played with Wool. Yeah, way okay. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And when Pete came down to record the song on our album, I I brought that up. I don't know if he was being nice, and we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. But oh, he'll he, have some good stories to oh, tell, you know. But he goes, "Yeah, I remember you," or something, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. I'm like, "There's no way, Pete. It was one yeah. show, and yeah. you know, maybe we made that big of an impression on him." But yeah. um, I definitely remember playing with Wool. Yeah, it was, yeah, in Toronto, yeah. It, was, it was great, and I loved Wool. Yeah, Pete has a great voice. I mean, it's it's a unique. You kind of recognize it when you hear totally. it, you know. Yeah, and when he came down in the studio and he you know really quiet guy obviously yeah. and when he started singing me and the producer of the record nick Raskolinix, we looked at each other and we were just like because <laughs> yeah. he had yeah. done a goat snake record and um uh he he had suggested pete to me yeah. and when i heard his name lobbed out there i was like fuck get you yeah. get, you know pete Stahl. so yeah. it was nice to do and we did it at Dave Grohl Studio, six oh six. So, uh, so oh, and the one in um, L.A. Yeah, yeah. So it was, a, it was kind of a nice circle. And then speaking of Dave Catching and Josh Homie, uh, yeah, John Garcia's on the same track. Right. So yeah. there's a kind of a, a another circle. Yeah. But, I, I I was 
I was telling you, you got to get out to the Rancho in, in Joshua Tree because that studio is, uh, I mean, a lot of people have made the pilgrimage out there mm-hmm. because so many great, you know, people and, and uh, albums have been made at that studio. And, and it's surprising when you get there because it's, it's just in this little, you know, ranch house. It's not a huge fancy studio, but it's got a vibe in there. And, and there's Joshua trees everywhere, and it's, it's beautiful. Our drummer on this tour, Rich, yeah. he his old band recorded there too. So yeah. he's aware, he's he knows that studio. He likes that yeah. place a lot. And you're not the first person to tell us that we should go there yeah. and record and and catch the vibe. Yeah. But um, but yeah yeah maybe. But uh, yeah, it was nice. It's nice to know that like Pete is on the the tour yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, it was nice to know that you guys are on the tour. Yeah. It, it was it was yeah. kind of we we're like all right. Wow, this yeah. this is gonna be fun, you know. Like knowing you guys were there, and I'm, of course, I just met you here. But you know, yeah. the fact that Duff is, in a sense, vouching for for yeah. all of you guys, and yeah, yeah. I was like, all right, so yeah. this should be cool, and and it certainly has. So, and you know, another thing, it's kind of special for me is that uh, it was 20 years ago in 1993 that my old band, Screaming Trees, opened for Alice in Chains when their Dirt record came out, and we did a. Uh, it was about a. It was almost a year. I think it was eight or nine month world tour all over Europe, North America, um, and uh, and and we went on after that to play other parts of the world. But um, th- that was a real powerful year because it was their breakthrough year with with the Dirt album and our album, Sweet Oblivion, had had come out and yeah, and uh, you know, and then twenty years goes by and you know we've lost a few people. We lost Lane Staley and and um, and other people. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're in this business for 20 years or more, you know, you kind of look around and you see who's still standing and, you know, they usually have, uh, some real character, uh, that they've developed over the, over the decades. Um, a lot of life experience, a lot of musical experience, you know, people have gone on to do other projects and, and work with different people, but, um, you know, I'm in my mid forties now, so, um, I don't feel old but i don't feel like i did when i was 24 you know <laughs> but but i i like being this age i like i like seeing my peers and and seeing how they've done and what they've learned and just that world experience that comes from that and they're headlining this whole festival yeah so they haven't they've actually gained ground yeah and they, they sound killer man their live sound their show is amazing yeah. You know the one of the best parts of this tour is the catering. It it, it really that is. That is good food consistently yeah. every day, mm-hmm. you know, three times a day. Those people work so hard. I mean, talk about getting up early and yeah. having breakfast for a crew of 250 people. Which leads us into another subject, the art of cooking and <laughs> <laughs> just in case we, yeah, we don't touch on yeah it. we have to because how did we get into that what was the uh well i mean it, it, you know i mean if you're gonna sit and have a discussion with me for uh, over a period of days for more than an hour at a time we're we're gonna touch on three's company that's right which is my favorite tv show yeah. of all time i grew up on it I, and and uh at, you know through two mr ropers Yes. So. Yeah, I mean, after like Kiss, it's Three's Company. Like in terms yeah. of like pop culture isms that yeah. kind of almost mold me and define me. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, I was the guy who was on the forums when they were releasing each season every six months on DVD. Yeah. Checking in when that release date is. Yeah. Like, I'm one of those dudes. So, yeah. It's classic. <laughs> it's a classic comedy show because it's, it's always, if you watch the arc of, of, of any given show, it always starts with two people having a conversation, a third person overhearing the conversation, but totally misinterpreting the meaning, you know, because there's always all, it's loaded with innuendo and, mm-hmm. and references that if you didn't know the context of it, you would assume something totally different. Yeah. So almost every show starts off with this, the triple misunderstanding, yeah. hilarity ensues. And I believe I, I make a strong argument that John Ritter, uh, as, uh, as Jack, the, the, the guy that really wants to be a truly great chef. Now, that, when did that show premiere? I'm going to guess like 76, 77. Uh, as much as of a fanboy I just said I was, I think it was 76. Yeah, it's a late. 77, yeah. Yeah, mid-late 70s. Yes. It's, it's in California, so the food and health craze is just starting to... That's where it started in the United States. I see, I didn't know that. It was, it's, it's in L.A. Yeah. It takes place in L.A. Yeah, yeah. and so I make the argument that... Uh, that that John Ritter as Jack the chef is he is the vector for the celebrity chef movement that would happen 25 years later in the United States. And when you when you brought that idea up, I didn't argue it. I, I really feel that that show really kind of. I mean, I was just a kid then, but I didn't know that eating was something to be you know yeah. precious about. Yeah. And and there's like. It was there was like a hierarchy of eating and yeah, I did it right. made me aware for the first time that there's such thing as fine dining and fine restaurants right and when I think about it when 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 a movie scene is set in a fine like dining restaurant you know when the actors are all dolled up and something's about to happen there I realized after you said that 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 stems from when you know Jack would you know, be on a date, or or we'd be out in the kitchen, and some crazy shits happening right. in the in the main hall. Right, right. That I never knew that. You know that that's really where it stems from, and all this uh, Hell's Kitchen and Food Network and all these yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. The Food Network, I think, is it might even be the biggest cable network at this point. It's gigantic. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, you know, but food guys critics like, like I'd, Anthony Bourdain, you know, his show is now a CNN travel show, and he started out as a yeah, as he's kind of transcended that whole yeah, it's, he's become like a a, a pop icon at yeah, this point, you know. Yeah. But I think, I mean, the good thing about the cooking movement is that prior to that, you know, good food and good eating was kind of rarefied to the elite that had the money to do that kind of thing now people learning how to cook in their homes like really cook um people can have good food and they they have a knowledge of it that they didn't have before and it's interesting that that was that was kind of like the character they wrote for for this kind of like because obviously it appealed to a demographic of like 18 to 30 year olds i'm guessing like a young crowd right and the fact that this was the character's makeup. He was a right. cooking school right. guy into right. a chef. Right. It was just so odd. And then the girls that he lived with right. couldn't cook. They had no background in cooking. Right. They right. they surrendered to him. Like right. he was the he right. owned the kitchen, right. which was a kind of a flipping of roles way back then. And here's another thing I just thought of: the whole premise, another ongoing theme of that show, was that it was assumed that Jack was gay. 
which was the only reason why Mr. Roper let him live yeah. with two girls that he wasn't, which he wasn't married to. Right. Of course, on the show, he's not gay, but he has to play the part of being gay, which again, pre, you know, this predates by 25, 30 years. You Even know, the discussion of... The, exactly. Yeah. The gay rights, the ability to, well, now get married, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, to a partner of your choice. Mm-hmm. So, so the archetype of Jack, the supposedly gay chef... I mean, that predates two huge social movements yeah. in the United States. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it, it can be said that comedy is one of the... I should have listed that in the beginning as one of the great art forms of, of a way to pass on information and intelligence and insight. But, of course, humor is... I mean, that's, that's such a great medium for that because people love to laugh. They want, they want to be in on the joke. Mm-hmm. And then the joke makes them think, like, oh... Okay, here's what's going on. And when you look back on those old episodes, you know, it it it, it is dated just the but I mean it's like 30 years old the the way they dealt with, you know, the the gay issue. Right. You know when right. Mr. Roper would would like hold up his pinky yeah, and just yeah. go Tinkerbell mm-hmm. and stuff right, and right. and just his yeah. viewpoint. I think people today really have this disconnect with how it was. Things move so fast that they forget that well you can't expect what happened 30 years ago to fall in line with how we all think today. It was right. because of those right. images and those shows that paved the way right. for how we accept, you know, the, right. the gay and lesbian community now, the yeah. way we do. And that, I mean, that is that right there is the argument for liberalism versus conservatism. Literally, from a philosophical standpoint, the conservative philosophy is to not ask questions. And to just take the status quo as it is and believe that that is the only way that things can be. Mm-hmm. The liberal philosophy is to push forward socially, economically, intellectually, artistically, and try to see, well, what is the next thing? Because it's, it's got to be better than what we're stuck in. Right. And so the art forms are the, are the, they're the spear point of that. You know, right. music is... Um, you know, clearly art and film, but I I, th- I think you know well written TV shows, good comedies, comedy totally. Is, yeah, like you said, yeah. it breaks down the yeah. laughing breaks down a lot of barriers in a yeah. way. But yeah, totally. And and I th- I think it's important to think of you know because we live in this politically polarized world that's either you're either a liberal or you're a conservative. But instead of thinking of it as a political spectrum, think of it as a philosophy. You know, conservative philosophy gets stuck. It's kind of stuck in the mud. It doesn't. It doesn't think what else is possible, and the liberal philosophy looks at all possibilities and and asks questions. And mm-hmm. it's in the asking of questions that evolution takes place. How do we take what we just discussed and bring it back to what we were discussing yesterday about <laughs> about, about art history? <laughs> Because we Dice know Clay. how much you love to talk about. Oh yeah, comedy. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about George Carlin and. Oh my God. Yeah, the great the great comedians. I mean, we, I mean Louis C.K. Yeah, and, this episode is just kind of glossing over um, hours yeah. of of the discussions that we've had over the the last kind of couple of weeks on this tour. You know, you know what we di- who we didn't talk about yesterday, but it's important. Uh, I, I mean, I'm old enough that I was growing up when when Richard Pryor was the biggest comic. Mm-hmm. comedian in the world and um and, and also george carlin and uh 
well, Steve Martin, for that matter. I mean, when I was a kid, Steve Martin was, you know, he was doing stand-up routines and, and releasing, you know, comedy albums. Yeah, I wish he, he still did it. Yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, Steve Martin's a, he's a classic Renaissance man. You know, he's a comedian first, and then he became a novelist and mm -hmm. an actor, and he's an incredibly good banjo player. Yeah, I think he's been nominated or won some Grammy. <clears throat> yeah, for that for... for that last album, and he has one of the largest art collections in the world. Yeah, he's so a super art collector, and he's knowledgeable about art. Like yeah. he can speak fluently about his periods of time, and yeah. Have you ever read some of not the the more of his comedy books? Have you ever read any of that stuff? Uh, well, yeah. It's when I was a kid, on. I had all of them. Yeah. Oh, like Cruel Shoes and stuff? I had Cruel Shoes yeah. and Comedy is Not Pretty. And Comedy is Not Pretty. Oh, yeah. yeah, but, uh, yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> the books that he Cruel put... Cruel Shoes. <laughs> oh, man. I'm totally back in high school right now, but okay. Um, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, comedy, uh, the comedy books he's written in the last maybe, I guess maybe they're 10 years old now 15 years old yeah i mean if that's all we can get in terms of stand-up comedy from steve martin now yeah. i'm more than willing to take it because yeah. they're yeah. fucking hilarious yeah. yeah so funny he's and it's just it's nice to know that a guy who who you know oh he's he's out of the game no he's not he's so on point yeah. he's just yeah. chosen not to do that do it in that medium but yeah. i'm more than happy to read his his little essays or yeah. funny essays that yeah. he's written and compiled yeah. uh yeah. they're hull, they're still like belly aching yeah. hilarious yeah um he strikes I, me as the kind of guy that has achieved and done i mean he's played at the top of the game in all those categories as a comedian as an actor as a writer mm -hmm. and as now as a banjo player yeah, yeah. uh he's I, I think he can kind of do pick call his shots and do whatever he wants to do there's something about his comedy though on his comedy records that really hit me right away like it was something like kind of from the beyond yeah. where I'm like I get this guy on a on a it's this on a level that I've never gotten anyone before yeah, um, yeah. his comedy hit me pretty hard when I was I think I got around the time I was about to go through puberty yeah yeah and so uh, uh steve martin brothers um uh, let's get small yeah let's get small yep and yep. um and yeah, comedy is not pretty yeah are like some of the greatest comedy albums ever yeah. done and i just i kind of you know like a lot of people i kind of wish that he just kept going yeah. but he kind of explains it i think in that book that he published that by uh, autobiography on was it called standing I think, up i think i need to read that because i'm i don't know that one but it sounds like i just added a book to my list it's about yeah. three years old now okay and it, right. it, it he takes you on his whole journey through being a stand-up comedian right at the pinnacle of his game yeah and then i think and and then i think his reasons for dropping off right and he ties it in with his relationships with his family right and stuff. So it's right. amazing to get yeah from the source like you know the whole king tut thing or whatever. oh yeah he, yeah he he lays it down right in, in the in the book it's, yeah it's amazing so i think it's called standing up okay stand i gotta look something that. like something yeah. with the word stand up in it all those guys like like steve martin robin williams oh, richard yeah, pryor totally um you know they were all coming up around the same time i'm sure there's many others i'm just off the top of my head i of can't course, think of them yeah but, you know but i think also you know the the drugs kicked in at a certain point and you know had had, had you know 
alternately inspiring and damaging effects on everybody. Yeah, this I mean, is true in all art forms at that time. Oh, yeah, you listen to those like 70s records that Robin Williams made, yeah. and he's so high on coke. Yeah. Even as a kid listening to it, I'm like, normal people don't talk like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Some, something's going on <laughs> yeah, here that isn't. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, it's funny, I met Robin Williams, I met, met him twice. Oh, really? There's a wow. lot, yeah, there's a lot of uh, movies that are shot in Toronto. So, you know, every now and then there'll be sure, like some yeah. movie star sighting and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it was like in the dead of winter and I was walking somewhere downtown in the club district. I don't know where I was going. And I saw this guy just walking really slowly with a huge red parka on and he had his <laughs> hood on and he had two bags. Uh-huh. They looked like some kind of, if, if, the, if the parka wasn't a very expensive looking parka he would have looked like this homeless guy with these right. like, kind of plasticky bag looking things and he's walking down the street and the closer I got to him I, I immediately knew it was Robin Williams yeah and just because I'm in Toronto and I'm not in LA I, I because the movie it's it's called uh, Hollywood North mm-hmm. Toronto is yeah so so I knew that it oh that looks like oh no that's Robin Williams we're in Toronto yeah yeah and uh, I walked by and and uh, I, I I said I'm, I'm a big fan that's all I said to him. I didn't call him out. He goes, he just nodded. He just nodded silently and kept walking. Yeah. And then I realized that there was this thing on his album at the end of the uh, Throbbing Python of Love where there's this kind of little scene that he plays out when he actually meets someone who knows him and he, oh, yeah. he's the, the thing. So the second time I, I met him, he was doing, I guess he was in town again with a, with a movie, but he went to an open night like an open mic night yeah and he's he was on stage they just gave you know he just walks in and it was right. the back of this just this restaurant that had an open mic night wow. and one of our friends is a comedian and he texted jc and he said robin williams is here and so we all just got in the car and we drove over to the to the club and afterwards you know people were asking him for photographs and stuff sure and yeah. so i went up to him and i'm like now i'm prepared I know exactly what to say to him, yeah. and we, we we went for a photo, and right before the the guy clicked the photo, I go, um, I've always wanted to say this to you. I met you once. I always wanted to say, joke them if they can't take a fuck. And then I just posed for the photo, and the photograph is him like looking at me, and he goes, "That's a wonderful tribute. Thank you." Because that was the last that's line. From the line of that. Of yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I got I got it in. You know, I've, yeah. it always bugged me when I when I met him that first yeah. time. I was like, "Fuck! I should have said that to him." And then when I yeah. saw him, I was like, "All right, right. Joke him if you can't take a fuck." And, yeah. and, and that was it. So that was that's my Robin Williams story. But I have the photo, and he's looking at me. He's not looking at the camera, and it's the yeah. best moment ever. It's, it's it's really nice, and he's smiling and everything, and he's like looking at me. So I'm looking at the camera because I said what I had to say, and I'm just the only comedian, and he's a great one that I ever met was Don Knotts. Oh the original, yeah, oh yeah, the, the original Mr. Furley and and from Three's Company, and that's and, how we got on the whole yeah. Three's Company. Yeah, we were. I was I was on tour with the Screaming Trees, and we were playing in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he was staying in the same hotel that we were, and he was with. He was with Barbara Eden, who was, you know, I Dream of Jeannie, you know, who's like the hottest babe on television exactly. when, you're, when you're 10, <laughs> yeah. you know. And still today, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I've done Google <clears throat> image searches. <Yeah. laughs> We've all Googled yeah. I Dream of Jeannie. But um, she, uh, he, he and her were doing a, uh, they were doing a, a traveling version of uh, Last of the Red Hot Lovers, uh, a Neil Simon play. Wow. And uh, they were they were staying in our hotel. And what, what year is this? This is about 90... 
I'm going to say 93, 94. So, I mean, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- my, my, uh, one of my uh, crew guys and I were standing in the lobby of the hotel and the, the elevator door opens and it's Don Knotts. And so we just, I mean, it's a shocking thing when you see somebody that that you grew up with, you know, as like a icon on television and everything. And you're not expecting it in Chattanooga, Tennessee. (laughs) Right. And, and, uh, my, my drum tech got his picture taken with him. I didn't, but you know, I, I, well, you know, this is before the age of digital cameras, the internet and cell phones, you know, it's like hard camera film, you know, and I was never much. Well, then how did he have a camera on him? Uh, you know, he actually was one of those guys that had the foresight to have a camera with him almost at all times. I have met lots of people and been in great situations, and I just never think to take a photo because I just want to experience that moment yeah, right. with that person. Yeah. I don't need to photograph it. But, but, uh, but now, boy, today now, <laughs> those, those moments are being disrupted because That's, of that. Yeah, every, 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 well, uh, you know, it's kind of part of being a rock and roller. You know, you, you meet a lot of people, shake a lot of hands, sign CDs, and get your picture taken you know yeah. a lot yeah. and so you just you know it's it's you adapt to the changing times that you're in yeah. so but um i'd like to think that i perhaps am the don knots to somebody <laughs> to else somebody, yeah. as he was to me right so so he walks out of the elevator yeah he just walked out of the elevator and it was my drum tech who noticed him first and right. and he said uh, he said oh mr knots you know something like that like you know we we're always very respectful of course of i've course. always i've always said mr to everybody i ever met you know, right. I even refer to you as Mr. Jones because well, I, I think that sounds good. Well, thank you, Mr. Martin. But uh, anyway, he was very he was very polite, you know, wonderful guy. You know, I mean, Don Knotts and people of that era, that's old Hollywood, you know. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah, classic, totally. yeah. classic, classy people, great actors. Yeah. Very different from what Hollywood passes off today. Yes. As an actor. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. Anyway, they, I've, I've had a few moments like that where I met people. That Did Barbara Eden come out? No, after? she wasn't. I, she, I think she was already, you know, at, down at the theater at the oh, local playhouse right. or whatever. I, did, I didn't get to meet her. Um, the only other person that I've met in my life uh, that really, you know, I was pretty amazed when I met him was Fidel Castro. I, and that's an entirely different story, but I, I just had to like get this in there because yes, you, you meet a lot of people in your life and, and you meet, you know, actors and other musicians that you admire their work and, and you have something that, you know, you can talk about, you know, you, like you and I talk about records that we like, or mm-hmm. we talk about, uh, you know, TV shows, right. things like that. But I, I was in Cuba in 1999 for this. It was a music diplomacy program that President Clinton set up. So it was a legitimate, oh, okay. you know, we traveled. Was gonna, that was my next question. Yeah, yeah we, we flew down there uh, as a group of uh, musicians. Screaming Trees? No, not. Uh, it, it wasn't by band. It was more like you were selected by uh, artists. So some of the people on the, on the plane were uh, Burt Bacharach, uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, the Indigo Girls. Uh, Michael Franti, uh, myself, Peter Buck from REM. Oh, so uh, it was that project. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, but it, but they they didn't send entire bands. They would just send people, individuals that like we had to be interviewed, and they wanted people that had good diplomatic conversational skills. You know. And, yeah. You know, maybe a little bit of a you know Spanish language you know ability, which right. I can kind of understand and barely speak Spanish, but enough that I can I could get by in Cuba. And you know? Bert does, I guess. 
Uh, I don't know. Bert probably could afford to have an interpreter with him, you know. Uh, But, um, but yeah, it was a really, you know, and and people from uh, from Europe as well, like uh, Patty Maloney from the Chieftains, Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland from the Police. And you were all in this plane. We're all on one jet that flew from Miami down to uh, down to Havana, and we spent a couple weeks down there working with Cuban musicians, writing songs and recording them for you know as a project. It was a exchange program. It's amazing. The Baltimore Orioles baseball team also came down and and played the Cuban national team. That's so random. So well, but you know there were one of the things I think is important about being an artist is that you know it's the artists that go in and break the ice and start to create dialogue with uh with the people and if you you know know anything about dizzy gillespie the great american trumpet player Mm -hmm. you know he did that with his united nations band where he went around the world and played every capital of almost every major country in the world and took music to people and you know there there was an ambassadorial kind of thing going on with that and um, and the U.S. State Department still has a program like that, which I think it's mostly for jazz groups that they do that. They send them around the world. But in right. this case, they sent down rock musicians and singer-songwriters, and we worked with these Cuban musicians. And uh, the last day before we left, we were summoned to the presidential the palace or whatever they call it. And we just went through a diplomatic receiving line, yeah. you know, where you just shake sure. hands. And we met several dignitaries, and Fidel Castro was the big one. Right. And uh, he was in a suit, three-piece suit. He's very well dressed. Oh. And uh, now, keeping in mind that I had done a lot of reading about, I'd, yeah, I'd, I've read all of Che Guevara's books, the, the you know Argentinian, but transplanted to Cuba, right. revolutionary. And the Cuban Revolution itself was a great thing. They kicked out the American mafia, which had been you know ruling Cuba, and turned it into a playground for the elite. So the Cuban Revolution kicked out those people. And, tr- and gave it back to the people and then it went and then it became a dictatorship so mm-hmm. the, you know mm-hmm. this is often the case with revolutions they start with great ideas and great intentions and they turn into dictatorships mm-hmm. but uh but that all being said i was there representing the united states as a musician and i met mr castro and i said cuba is a magnificent country with certainly some of the best musicians in the world really and and that is true the cuban musicians are amazing how good they are um, and uh, and then I and then I said, and now I've shaken the hand that fought beside Che Guevara, and he and he laughed and winked at me, and because wow. it, because it's a it's a respectful yeah, you know, yeah I wasn't yeah, being yeah. insulting in no, any way no. I was honoring you know the original Cuban Revolution. Um, so uh, that but that's the only time I met somebody that I realized I was meeting a historical yeah. world figure here. Yeah, this yeah. is not just like a movie star or. A, this is like an, an iconic person, and he did have that, of course, that gravitas yeah. thing of you know somebody that stood up to the United States. So, and I'm not defending Fidel Castro as a dictator, but I'm honoring the Cuban Revolution and the fact that you know they they booted the the mafia mm-hmm. out of there and took their country back. Right. Wow. So, and and I am one of those people that I I'm against the Cuban embargo. There's no reason there. I'm, believe the statistic is that you know 99 percent of the people living in cuba today were not even alive when the cuban missile right. crisis happened you know so well being canadian i mean <coughs> right jc goes to you can go down there yeah yeah jc's been there 
I think that's one of his favorite spots to vacation, right? He's oh, yeah. A couple times, yeah. And if you want to learn about music and really see the top players in the world, Cuba and, and Brazil, those are the two places that I've been where I was, I was stunned right. at the level of musicianship. Yeah, I think he, yeah, he, he always has a great time. He always ends up hanging out with, yeah, yeah the, I don't know, he does his own, yeah, he goes out and journeys and yeah, searches yeah. and finds, yeah, you know, and yeah, I'm more of a, I'm more of an endorsement. Let's put it that way. Uh, an As endorsement? Endorsement. Oh, endorsement. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he's more of an outdoorsman and I'm more of an endorsement. But uh, whenever he comes back, from Cuba, he, he's always got these stories and these people he's met, and he yeah. loves the place. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, it's it's too bad. Well, we'll see how long. Well, it I'm lasts. hopeful. I I hope that at some point, you know, some intelligence will resume to the American political system, and we'll get that embargo. That doesn't help anybody. No, you know, it doesn't. the world the world is evolved and advanced by exchange and communication and art and ideas and humanity and you can't have that if you shut people off or shut off countries um, because when you do that you, you create an isolated situation where very bad things can develop yeah in a nutshell that's what I want to end on that that's a great yeah sure that's yeah. that's you and I could probably talk for Every time we talk, we're going to have a different conversation. Well, yeah. This I happens mean, to be the one we got today. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we could, uh, I think I might actually take you up on that and just quietly do another podcast with you. Sure. Without you knowing. Yeah. And just record while in between chews at catering, just, just crunching. Just bring a tape. You don't have to even secretly do it. <laughs> just bring a tape machine. We'll just like sit there and eat and talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we should do that. Yeah.